For those who are joining us, my name's Andrew. I get to be one of the pastors here, and that's a privilege and a gift, and it comes with consequences. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. We, um, I wanted to update you about um, the students. A lot of you guys were part of uh, helping send our students on a winter retreat, and it's been really, really great. Uh, there's 25 of us who went up on Friday, and they're still there. They're coming back this afternoon. And it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I don't know, did anybody grow up going to, like, winter retreats? Did anybody remember that growing up? Yeah, winter retreats haven't really changed. You just go, and there's just lots of snow up north, and you just find things to do in the snow. And uh, I'm in pain because I wanted to live vicariously through these students, relive my days of being a student at winter retreats, and uh, I just, the most fun moments of a winter retreat for me were, were getting into two to three feet of snow and just like no rules fighting to get a ball in a bucket or something like that. And so I told these, these young guys who aren't used to doing that, they're used to playing video games all day. And I said, guys, we were, we were putting our phones down, we we're putting our phones away, we we're going into two feet of snow, and this is going to be murder ball. There's, no, there's not really any rules to this. We are just, there's a ball, we're trying to get in a bucket, and there's two teams. And that's what we did with the boys. And it was an absolute blast. And they destroyed me. Like, I'm a big guy, and they like, they want all out, and I gave them that. They took some shots, some extra shots here and there, some gut shots that, that were kind of uncalled for, but I gave them that moment, and now I'm suffering. Um, we had quite an adventure, though, uh, getting there. Uh, I just want to sh- share some pictures with you. This first picture you're going to see is our travel to the retreat. <laughs> we, we ordered a 55-passenger coach bus, and uh, instead what showed up was a not 55-passenger party limo. <laughs> so, so, so if you've ever been in one of these, um, don't feel ashamed or anything. Um, there, it, was, it was like full-on party bus with the LED lights, a non-stocked bar, like everything, seats facing in. It was, a, it was, it was, a, it was an awkward moment where we kind of looked at the bus driver and said, we think you picked up the wrong bus. This is a, this is a youth retreat with, with mostly junior high age students that were driving to a Christian camp. And... Uh, we had, to make a, we had to make a judgment call, and we thought, well, we're not going to miss the retreat over this. So we, we piled in. I stood for three hours long, leaned up against a, a bar for three, three and a bit hours, actually. And uh, we also had this uh, interesting dynamic where the 400 was closed because of terrible weather. So we're in a less safe bus than normal with less safe weather than normal. But by the grace of God, Doug from Milton Bible Church, who came with us, is like a full-on meteorologist, like weather network guy. And, uh, and so, like, I know that you, you struggle with trust for weather network guys, right? We all do, because they're wrong 40% of the time. But the amazing thing, Doug was just sitting there on his laptop looking up weather systems and, like, looking up actual specific, like, weather stations and rerouted the bus the safest way there. It was amazing we got there safe and everything was, was great. Your students are so pure, they, they were like, oh, turn off the LED lights. Turn down the music. And I'm like, guys, this is so fun. <laughs> and, and they're like, no, this is so lame. I also want to honor you guys. This junior high students, um, if you're a parent of a junior high student, raise your hand and who's at the retreat right now. My goodness, these, the boys and the girls, they wanted to go to bed. It was amazing. Like, actually, they actually, 
they, I, I walked in, I'm thinking, we got back to our cabin pretty late because we got there late, everything started late, and I walk into the junior high boys' cabin, and I held my breath, because that's what you do in junior high boys, little, to, to make sure, like, hey, guys, we've got to wrap things up, going to sleep. All of their lights were off, and they were, like, in their bed. It was amazing. I was like, who, are, who is this group? So I've been doing youth ministry for 12 years. That's never happened to me before. Never happened to me before. So uh, this was a lot of um, firsts for me, too. It's, it's been a great experience. They're coming back this afternoon. There's a few more pictures you can show of... Um, dining together. They're all rocking their yellow hats that we got for coldest night of the year from last year. So they made a little bit of a crew called the Yellow Hat Crew or something. Just having a blast in the snow. They did some night tubing. Some students for the first time did uh, snow tubing ever in their life last night and, and had, had a lot of fun and broke a few things. I don't think any bones, but I wasn't there. So it's not my fault if they did. And uh, yeah, this is a great time. We have some awesome leaders who are up there bringing them back. And I just wanted to update you on that because you guys have been treating them like family. And, uh, and, and there's 25 people missing in this room today who are up there who are family. It's a lot quieter in here this morning, though. It's kind of nice, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. We miss them a lot. We, um, we've been teaching through a, uh, we'll call it a teaching series, a teaching topic, a conversation about the speed of love. And we're going to continue that this morning. The idea is, um, the idea has been like, you can't love at a fast pace, right? Like the, the idea is that the um, relationship requires slowness. Relationship requires time. There's no way to do real relationship quickly. And so we've been talking about how um, if we want to have a relationship with God and we want to have a relationship with one another, then things need to slow down. One of the biggest barriers to our relationship with God is actually the pace in which we live, the speed in which we live, the distractions that are a result of that. So as we've been talking, we're going to continue that today. And today we're going to talk about the the speed of family. We're going to talk about family, in particular the church as a family. Before we get into that, we have one short text we're going to look at. It's pretty short, but it's a really... um, it's a very challenging thing that Jesus said, and, and I'll describe why it was so challenging in this time. We'll get there. But before we do that, I want to remind you of a, culture, uh, a couple of um, cultural realities that we live with. And, we, and, and here in Canada, it's interesting, we're in the West, so it's a real mix of cultural values. But, but particularly uh, in the West, we tend towards one side or another side. So I'm going to describe those to you so that this text comes a little bit more alive for us today. Uh, there's kind of two kind of, everything's on a spectrum, but there's two kind of wings uh, when it comes to social contracts and social dynamics. There's, there's individualism and there's collectivism. And so uh, I w- will remind you that we've talked about that in the past. We're going to open that up again this morning. Um, when it comes to um, how people organize and how societies organize, um, the, there's, there's uh, the individualistic way, which is the Western way, which, is, which dominates the Western world, Canada, U.S., Australia, U.K., France, like the whole Western world tends to be far more individualistic. The U.S., probably the most uh, individualistic society maybe to have ever existed in human history. And, uh, and what, what that means is that, um, well, is that they, as a, as, a, as a community, as a society, they have a high value for individual rights and individual uh, freedom. They uh, have a strong value for the individual pursuit of happiness, satisfaction, and success. It's all about my career. It's all about my education. It's about my pleasures, my rest, my leisure, my securities. We're fine-tuning our life for us as an individual, and then we're pursuing those ends to, uh, or those means to the end of, of personal individual satisfaction and success. We don't use things. When in an individualistic society, a freedom-dominated society, you don't use things, you own things. 
right? You don't, you don't use a home for shelter. You own a home. You possess it. You don't use a car for transportation. You own that thing. That is yours. It belongs to you. Uh, you, uh, you can serve, you can give to others, you can care for others, you can invest into a group, you can invest into a cause, but usually it's, it's for yourself to feel better. It's, it's to provide some sort of security for yourself or satisfaction in your life. And you do so from a place of freedom. You have to do so from a place of freedom. Freedom, right? It's, it's I'm enacting my will so that I can do this thing so that I feel good. It's not coerced. It's I have to freely choose to do it. In a hyper-individualistic culture, uh, we are generous to the group for the primary purpose of feeling better about ourselves. And uh, some of that comes across in a negative way, and maybe some of it is, but it's uh, not necessarily entirely negative. There's pros and cons to individualism versus collectivism. And we'll talk about that in a sec. In the opposite end of it, and we're talking about the polar extremes, everything's on a spectrum, but we're talking about the polar extremes because we in the West, especially in Canada and the North America, are, tend to be on the extreme of the individualistic side of the spectrum and the scale. In a hyper-collectivist culture, the social contract is based on the well-being of the collective, of the group, of the family, of the community, of the network. If we win, then I win, right? That's the idea in a collectivist culture. If we succeed, then I succeed. If we're secure, then I'm secure. If we're happy, then I'm happy. If we're wealthy, then I'm happy. You see the, the, the difference there, and it's quite a stark difference. Collectivist cultures, they're known as honor and shame cultures, and some of you guys grew up in that, especially in Canada. What's beautiful is that we have this like hyper-individualism because we are founded by Westerners who are hyper-individualists, but the people who make up this, just this room, we heard how many languages are represented in the, just from what Jen was doing this morning. Most people come from places in the world that have a stronger collectivist attitude or social contract and dynamic, and, uh, and in those cultures, there's the honor and shame reality, right, which is that your primary aim in life is not the possession of things, but it's actually to be honored, right, and so everything you do, you're filtering through, is this going to bring honor to me and my family and to my group, or, or then the opposite of that, obviously, is um, shame. The fear in a collectivist culture isn't as much you're still humans, but it's not as much about the loss of things, opportunity, and freedoms. Rather, the primary fear is um, to, be sh to be shamed, to be cast out, to be shunned, to be excommunicated. And so the, the decisions that you make, you filter through that lens in more of a collectivist culture, whereas an individualistic culture is, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm doing me. I'm going to go get my thing. I'm going to get my success. I'm going to work my way to the top. It doesn't matter what my family thinks. It doesn't matter what other people think. Like, that's the hyper version of it, but just so, you, just so it's clear for you on the, uh, so you can see the, the spectrum. Now, we're not talking about, like, a moral, it's not a moral statement that we're making, you're probably deducing some sort of ethic from it, but, but, but you probably shouldn't. It's just the way we organize ourselves socially. So we humans have organized themselves socially. And uh, it's important to kind of see those dynamics. Both have their challenges, and they're both constantly battling against each other, even in your own heart, in your own mind. You probably heard me describe those two things, and you're like, yeah, sometimes I lean towards that, but sometimes I lean towards this. Within your own heart is this battle between individualism and selfish ambition, as well as meeting the needs of the group and pleasing other people, right? You, you battle that yourself. And so in the individual, there's constantly this battle going back and forth for this. And then in communities, there's constantly kind of this, this push and pull here of individualism and collectivism, both in local communities, provincial, and even at national levels. And, and uh, in the, I, I, 
it's not a political statement. I think some of the healthier political systems, they have a balance of that. Like there's, there's multiple groups of people that are pushing back and forth for that purpose, the kind of the collectivist kind of uh, way to organize ourselves and the individualistic freedom way to organize ourselves, right? And there's a push and pull that I think is really healthy, particularly in a, in a free uh, democracy. But like I said, there's dangers for both. The primary danger of the individualist, which you're all aware of, is selfish ambition and uh, at the expense particularly of, of others. Careerism at the expense of families, emotional, relational health. Do we know that pretty well in Canada? We do know that. We see it all around us. Is, uh, is, is the pursuit of a career at the expense of our own family's well-doing. Self-preservation at the expense of group success is something that we see around us all the time. That's the danger of individualism. The other danger of individualism is um, the pursuit of identity. Trying to find your identity uh, as an individual is nearly impossible. You start looking within your emotions, your feelings, your opinions, but those are changing so much. They're, they're so fleeting. They're not consistent. And so you have a hard time tying your identity to anything because you're just looking within. There's nowhere else to look because you're not going to get that from their opinions because you're an individual. But what that means is you're just constantly shifting and changing. You're constantly anxious. You don't know who you are because identity can't actually be found from within. You don't just make it up. And so the danger of it is, is constant anxiety, trying to figure out who you are without relying on other people to help you do that and see that. We can be left lonely and feeling lonely uh, as a result of it. We starve ourselves of genuine relationships if we do that. If we pursue freedom fully and entirely, then that's at the expense of relationships with others. We build walls to protect ourselves and protect our things. We build fences. We hide in our homes. We don't see our neighbors ever, right? And that's the, that creates a loneliness. We get starved of relationship and love from others. And the danger of collectivism is equal. It's an equal danger on the other side. The danger of collectivism is tribalism. Tribalism, the danger is oppression. The danger is systems of hierarchical control. Those dangers are racism. The dangers are ethnocentrism. The dangers are nationalism. Those are the hyper, those are the workings of a hyper collectivist uh, movement. Those are the, kind of the, the, the result if it's done in a poor way or an unhealthy way. And we've, uh, we've seen that uh, over, well, all, all of human history. We're still battling that. Right? We still wrestle with racism. We still wrestle with ethnocentrism. We still wrestle with um, those feelings of tribalism, like us versus them thinking. And that's, that can be the danger of, of uh, collectivist thinking. And then we've got to set up systems that, um, that, are, uh, that maintain power and control Right, to say, like, well, this system then decides on whether you should be honored or shamed, right? As so you set up systems of power control, and then if you give those systems and those people who control those systems guns to enforce it, then it becomes more and more dangerous, right? So you can see the, the dangerous outworking of, of both. The other danger is that if you don't allow individuals the freedom to innovate, create, forge, trailblaze, develop new technologies, new farming methods, the, the, those things can help the group. And if you don't give them the freedom to do that, well, then you actually lack as a group. People suffer because you're not giving people the freedom to actually uh, develop new things, to uh, forge new ways. And, and, and what's required sometimes to do that is freedom. Think about the freedom of speech, right? It's a big conversation in our cultural moment. Freedom of speech. And the reason why freedom of speech people are so pro-freedom of speech is because in order to figure out what we think, we have to say it. Because we don't really know. Like we, we, 
Thinking is not just what happens in your mind, right? Thinking is what you end up like being able to formulate into a sentence. And if we don't, if we can't think without speaking. And so the reason why, why the really pro-freedom group is so fr- uh, pro-free speech is because in order to think well, in order to figure out what we actually think as a collective, as a community, we need to say these things. We need to negotiate these things. We need to say something and then someone will go, that's not as good of an idea, here's a better idea. And then we together can figure out what is the best idea. That's the only way forward. And, and the danger with hyper-collectivist culture that you may not have that. And so um, you may not actually know what is best or be able to get to what is best in any particular cultural moment. What I find really interesting is, um, is that a lot of people trace kind of hyper-individualism and the rest back to a Judeo-Christian worldview. They actually trace it back to the belief that, that Jews and Christians have uh, that the individual is made in the image of God. And so the individual's rights and freedoms are protected by God. That's written into the American Constitution. That's like somewhat said in our Constitution in Canada-ish, sort of. Um, it's kind of there. The value for it is there. And, and they trace it back to Judeo-Christian roots, which, um, which is interesting and, and may not be a, a wrong thing. Maybe was God's intention or desire to eventually for us to, to grow to a point of understanding it this way. But the interesting thing about reading Jesus is that Jesus did not grow up in an individualistic society. Jesus didn't grow up in a culture that was hyper-individualistic. And there's a real danger in reading Jesus through our Western hyper-individualist lens, right? We come up with all these weird things that Jesus never said, that Jesus probably didn't believe, that Jesus wouldn't have been a proponent for. But it's hard to read Jesus without reading in our own cultural lens. And that's why we have to do the work of exegesis and we have to do the work of proper um, study of scripture sometimes so that we can really fully understand Jesus a little bit better. Because for Jesus, Jesus's concern wasn't so much with collectivist thinking. He, he was ingrained in that. He was rooted in that. That was like the norm was this kind of like collectivist um, social dynamic and social construct. Um, Jesus's uh, primary um, a concern with it was ethnocentrism, right? Was this idea that the Jews are the chosen people of God and nobody could be included in it. That's what he fought against, that he, he wrestled against. And we're going to look at that teaching this morning. It's really, really short, like a couple of verses teaching, but it's actually really profound, very provocative if you actually understand this people he's speaking to when he made the statements that he makes. And so in Luke chapter 8, verse 16 to 21, I'm going to read the first section here. Just to give you an understanding of where Jesus, or at least where the writer, Luke, uh, puts this statement of Jesus after. So in 16 to 18, Jesus is talking about the lamp on the stand. Many of you grew up in church, you know this, this text. Uh, Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar clay and puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how to listen. Whoever has, uh, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not, even they will think they have, and they will ha- uh, what they have will be taken from them. So this is Jesus' teaching in the parables. You can read all the parables. You're very familiar with them if you grew up in church. He's teaching about the kingdom of God, and particularly here he's talking about how the kingdom of God is actually meant to be a light for the world, not hidden under a bowl, but it's supposed to actually be something that everyone can be drawn to and everyone can experience the blessing from. So that's kind of where this next text comes after. So here's what follows that teaching in Luke chapter 8, verse 9 through 21. Jesus, now Jesus' mother and brother came to see him, <clears throat> but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. 
Somebody told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside and they're waiting to see you. And he replied, my mother and brother are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now to properly understand the weight of the statement, you need to know that in first century Jewish culture, the patriarchy was very strong. In today's West, uh, we would say uh, that our most intimate, important relationships even to, especially today in the West, we'd say it's with yourself, right? You kind of hear that language like, you need to be, what's that? You're worth it. Yeah, well, yeah, the really love yourself and first relationship that's most important is your relationship with yourself. And, I, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's what our Western thinking would say. And then we would probably go to like maybe our spouse, right? You'd probably say, well, the second, if I'm married, the second most important relationship that I have is my spouse. And, uh, and maybe third most important relationship is with my own kids, even though we live as though our most important relationship might be with our kids rather than our spouse. But that's a different conversation to have another time. But the point is, like, we think the most important relationship and most intimate relationship is with our spouse, ourself, or maybe our kids. <coughs> it's important to understand that um, <coughs> that wasn't the case in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, first century Palestine, the most important relationship you had was with your bloodline going up. Your spouse was a means to continuing your bloodline. Your marriage, in many ways, was about joining bloodlines and a broader family success. A lot of them were arranged marriages. That was very normal back then. It's normal in some cultures, especially collectivist cultures today. And so uh, what the more important relationship, the most important relationship you had in the first century uh, was actually with your siblings and with your parents, right? Your mother and your brother. Because sometimes we treat our mother and our brother like they're, once we start our own family, it's like, ah, you ignored, I ignore my mom's texts all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know, am I the only one? I don't, mom, I don't. <laughs> but like, you know, like if my wife's texting me and my mom's texting me, I have, I'm answering my wife's text first, right? Like I have to. Um, it's, it wasn't that way. Back then it was like, no, you answered your mom. You answered your brother. They were the most important. Your spouse came after that, right? So it adds some, well, your father too, yes. The reference is mother and brothers, but yes. Um, so just so you know, this is what's going on in this text here. Jesus um, basically says, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm prioritizing the relationship with those other than my mother and my brother's. Now, Tom Wright, he notes this. I think this is an important side note because I've seen this and it's dangerous with this text. Uh, Tom Wright, he says, Woe betide preachers, pastors, or theologians who make this saying an excuse for neglecting their families because they're too busy with God's work. If you've ever heard that before, if you've seen that attitude or posture, just seen that lived out. Um, but woe to those who use this text as an excuse to neglect their family. Sometimes people use this kind of thinking as an excuse to neglect their own family in, in, uh, in, in support of their career or their selfish ambition. And sometimes pastors and theologians have done that too uh, in the name of Jesus. And that's actually, um, well, it's a gross misrepresentation of Jesus and what is in store for us and what he has for us in the kingdom. He goes on to say, but there is danger in store, too, for those who allow any claims, whatever, to modify or water down the absolute claim of God's word on their lives. Jesus, knowing that his family didn't understand his vocation, but hoping that they would come to understand it in due time, couldn't allow them to distract and divert him from the vital and urgent work that he was undertaking. So there's a really healthy balance somewhere in there, and you can see it. 
Verse 21, it says, he replied, mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. This is what Jesus says to us. Now, I don't know about you, but this makes me uncomfortable to read and then get up here and state publicly. I didn't say it. I didn't write it. This is the words of Jesus that have been translated for thousands of years to different languages, and we're reading this today, and it's a good translation of it, this one. It was the words of Jesus saying this. But I'm still uncomfortable with this quote of Jesus. In its proper cultural context, it still goes against my natural tendencies. So it goes against my own um, enculturation. It goes against my own sense of individualism. It goes against my own ethic for family that I've picked up along the way, mostly from Christian teaching and Christian doctrine. It just, it, it makes me feel weird inside. It challenges both a collectivist thinking It challenges the tribalism. It challenges the ethnocentrism. It challenges the racism, like very specifically and directly. And that was Jesus's context. He was saying, my brothers and my sisters and my mom are actually those who follow Jesus, and that's for everyone. It's not just my bloodline, right? It's not just my pure Jewishness. It's way bigger than that. So it challenges that, but it also challenges my individualism. Because to read that, I go, my mother and my brothers um, are those who hear God's word and put that into practice. What he is suggesting is that the family of God, represented by the people who choose to hear God's word and put, word and put it into practice, are to be thought of as though they are our mothers and our brothers, like family, as much family as my own family. And, and I wrestled with that as a, as a Westerner. What Jesus is saying here is that... Um, in this community, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, and particularly in this local expression, Southside at Maine here in Milton, the people that are sitting next to you who you may not even know, the people who are sitting next to you at a table around the room who you may have met only a few times that you've never even been over their house, what Jesus is saying is if those people next to you in this room um, share with you in hearing God's word and putting into practice that they are as much your family as your mom and as your brothers, as your father, and as your sisters. It's pretty provocative. It, it challenges me. I listen to this, and I hear someone else say it, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I, and, and I hope I'm not the only one. I don't think I'm the only one. It sounds like the kind of thing a cult leader would want to convince you of, doesn't it? Yeah, you read it, and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what a cult leader would say. They would say, look, this cult, this movement, this people's more important than your family. And so if they're not about it, get rid of them, get them out of your life, cut them out of your life, right? You've heard that, we've seen that, we've watched the documentaries all the time, we hear it over and over again, right? It sounds like that. This is a radical call to family. This is Jesus' radical call to family. And Jesus is unapologetic about that. We should also be unapologetic about that. At the same time as feeling weird, I don't know about you, feeling weird, trying to think, how does that even work? How, do, how does that look in reality? There's no way I choose... I mean, some of you are great, and I might choose you over my brother. Just kidding, Tim. Um, but some of you not so much, right? You know? Um, what does that even look like, right? So it makes me feel that the other side of it is this is, um, if I'm honest with you, it's exactly what I desire. Like, if you're honest with yourself, it's exactly what you desire. It's exactly what you long for. It's exactly what you hope for. We are starved of genuine, trusting, mutually loving, supportive, familial relationship. 
We're starving from that in our own families. We're starving from that in our communities. We're starving from that on our softball teams and in our chess clubs and hanging out at the Legion. We're starving from that in our churches. We're starving from that in our culture groups. We're starving for genuine, honest, trusting, mutually loving, familial relationships, and especially in the West. What we long for is knowingness. Like what we long for is to be known and to know We crave family, especially in a hyper-individualistic world that we live in. Family has come at the expense of our hyper-individualism, and it's one of the primary reasons, many reasons, it is one of the primary reasons why we have a mental health and emotional health crisis in the West. Isn't that interesting? That the wealthiest place to have ever existed, with the freest people to have ever existed, are the most emotionally broken people people struggling with anxiety more than maybe ever, like the mental health crisis that we're all talking about, Bell Let's Talk just happened, and it seems like every teenager struggles with mental health, and maybe they're just saying that, or maybe they actually are as a result of this hyper-individualism, because hyper-individualism, the expense has been the breakdown of the family. So we're craving that. We long for neighborly love. I was talking to someone the other day, like earlier this week, and they're like, I just wish my neighbors would be outside so I can say hi to them. I have a neighbor who I invited, we've invited over three or four times to like have a barbecue, like safe outside. You see my yard. You're not going anywhere weird and unfriendly. It's like the yard you've walked in before. Come over and have a barbecue. And, uh, and they've said no multiple times. They've never invited us in. They have kids the same age. Like it's, I crave just like neighborly love. I want to walk across the street and borrow something of his so I don't have to buy it myself. But I don't have that. My neighbor's on all sides. They, Spend most of their time either in their backyard or inside. And I try my best. You know me. If you know me, I'm like, I'm like if I see you, I'm beeline it. I'm talking to you. you know? I'm, if I see you at the store, I am dropping what I'm doing. I'm trying to say hi. Like, that's just how I'm wired. I'm, I'm extroverted, so I'm trying my best. And I don't get that neighborly love back. I crave it. It feels lonely. It feels lost. Even though I have so much relation in my life, there's still that peace that I, that I long for. I want to share in blessings. I want sh- others to share in the blessings of my life. And then I also want to share in their, in their hurts, and I want them to share in my hurts. That's what I long for. I long for what families live like. Is that a question? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, right? <laughs> Fair. Yeah, we have to renew our coffee subscription, and we'll get you over there. Done. That's right. Yeah, I did promise that, didn't I? Did I? Did I promise it? Shoot. <laughs> Move next door, and you can have a coffee. Every morning, if you want. Yeah, we long to celebrate birthdays together, to lend a hand or a tool, to work side by side. We're desperate for meaningful relationships, sharing in the joys and the pains in a very safe space is what we long for. It's what we want. Social psychologists, they call this attachment theory. From the time we're born, before we're actually born, um, attachments are being developed in us, a desire to be attached, a desire to connect, a desire to be known. It's already being formed in the womb. And depending on how we are developed, both in the womb and outside of the womb, in the first particularly four years of our life, has a big uh, uh, implication on on our, our attachments and what our kind of attachment style is. And really what that is saying is that we long to be close. We long have familial relationship and and we do all these things to try to find that and to gain that and a lot of them are just the kind of things that don't produce that the the answer to all of our struggles with attachment is um is actually the 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 
the one thing that they've shown to actually consistently heal our brokenness and our attachments is, is genuine relationship. Like genuine, authentic, safe relationship. That is the primary thing that heals the brokenness in us. It really is. There's nothing else that can heal the way that genuine relationship does. No matter what your struggles, no matter what trauma happened to you when you were a kid, no matter what trauma happened to you later in life, that is the primary means to healing. There's genuine, true, authentic, familial-like loving relationship. And that is like social science says that. That's not just pastors saying that. We've just known for a little longer. (laughs) I'm just kidding. In the pursuit of the hyper-individualistic lifestyle, we're so busy. This is our plight. We're too busy, we're too hurried, we're too distracted to actually have those kinds of relationships. Every advertisement is a promise to a fulfilled life. Right? Every, every new couch that you see advertised, every new game, every new vacation destination, every extension on the house, every next movie to watch, what to wear, book to read, food to try, all of advertisement is actually um, the, the whole industry exist to, um, to pique your, your desires for attachment and say, hey, you're going to feel fulfilling and, lo- and, that, and that longing is going to be met if you do this thing, if you get this thing, if you buy this thing, right? Everything. And the difference between now and other times and other generations is that we, uh, we don't have to leave our home to get those <laughs> advertisements, right? Do people still call you about duct cleaning? <laughs> have they not figured out Instagram-like ads yet? Or is it effective? Side note. Um, But like they don't call us anymore because they're in our pocket, right? All of it, all advertising is feeding that desire in you to have genuine human relationship. And what it does is when we live into it, it just, it hurries us. We feel unfulfilled and then we chase another thing. We feel unfulfilled so we chase another thing and it just rapidly speeds up our life. And it leaves us feeling the anxiety that we feel. And what the cost is of that has been genuine family relationship. The speed of family takes time. It takes attention. It takes generosity. It takes emotional fortitude. It takes patience. That's what family requires. The speed of family is slower and steadier and gentler than the Amazon delivery guy, right? The speed of family is that. The speed of family is is presence, like, how long sometimes does it take you to sit and actually feel present? I don't even know if you feel that here sometimes. You come in on Sunday, and you're just kind of coming in, and you're like, hi, 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 sing, listen, sing, bye. You know what I mean? Like, you don't even sometimes feel like enough time to just feel present. I don't know, but maybe that's just me. I think it might be you too. And this is why our conviction at Southside is that we need to live into a new season of a family pace. And we need to live into new rhythms as a church community. If we're called to commit to building the kingdom of God in Milton, then we are called to commit to becoming family, which means we live like family. A lot of what a family does is, um, is happening this morning. Families get together, they worship together. Families get together, they submit mutual submission to teachings of Jesus, that the family of God has always done and they'll continue to do. Families um, organize themselves and have groups and programs for kids and youth. The youth are doing up north today and yesterday. I don't, honestly, I didn't care that much about whoever talked and whatever the topic was. I actually didn't know going there, and that didn't matter to me. Like, obviously, if they said crazy stuff, 
I would just get up and grab a mic and, you know. But they didn't, right? They're safe. It's fine. What mattered more is that they actually got away like a family would get away for a weekend and, like, lived in each other's dorm rooms and talked about things they wouldn't normally talk about on Friday and, and fought in the snow, you know, did crafts together, ate together, multiple meals, four meals of eating together, table fellowship. So youth at Maine, that is what family does. Kids church upstairs, making noise the way that they make. It's family. That's what family is like. Missional outreach in our community that we do here from this space on the main street here is family. And those are all elements of the kingdom of God. They are elements of living family life in the kingdom. But it's missing the dinner table. Family is missing, uh, the family life in this church is missing the dinner table. We are missing the uncomfortable space of being known. You can show up here for a long time and not really be known. You can show up here for a long time and never really have coffee at my house. You can, (laughs) she's distracted. (laughs) That was for you, Claire. You interrupted my sermon and I was throwing it back at (laughs) you. That's good. But for real though, right? We're missing that. We're missing the intimacy that comes with slow pace, messiness of our homes, noisy fellowship in our messy, cluttered homes throughout a busy, scattered week. We are missing that. And so what I want to tell you about, um, just briefly, is that by the end of the month, uh, we at Southside, we're going to be launching um, community. And we're calling it Communities at Southside. And they are local, geographically based, home-based, family-like relationships midweek gatherings uh, for the purpose of community. These communities will be characterized by table fellowship with entire families, not just like get a babysitter and go mom and dad, because that's not real family. Bring your family, and the kids will run around, and they'll be so annoying. My kids will be. They're so sweet. Um, They'll be characterized by table fellowship with a family. They'll be characterized by intentional, meaningful conversation. They'll be characterized by mutual support and accountability. They'll be characterized by serving as the hands and feet of Jesus together. The communities at Southside, they'll be multi-ethnic. They'll be multi-generational. They'll be multi-economic. They'll be generally geographically based, unless you don't live in Milton, but you want to come and join one, which I encourage. There'll be weekly gatherings, and they'll be around a dinner table in living rooms, maybe in basements. To be a disciple of Jesus is to live into the family that is the kingdom of God. And so that's the invitation. The invitation is to do that. It's not the requirement. You're free to choose because we are solid individualists here. and No one's going to force you to do anything, right? But you're free to choose. There will be the invitation. And that's because Jesus offers you that invitation. They'll probably be very similar to what a group you joined in the past was. House church, missional community. Um, Might be a few tweaks to them. But that's what we're going to do again. And we're going to take it seriously, and we're going to treat it as though it's the most important thing that we do as a church. We're going to treat it like it's the most important time in our week. We're actually raw and real and authentic and genuine with one another in the context of real community, sharing life together. In all my experience with church life, ministry, and kingdom building, which isn't that long, but most of my 20s, the deepest family relationships that have been formed in my life were around these gatherings. Some of the friends that I still am closest friends with today are the people who I spent time in community with. Some of um, my parents' friends who I still look up to and respect today 
have been formed in these kinds of relationships. Some of the key relationships and friendships in this church were formed through this kind of initiative. These are the spaces, I believe, where discipleship actually takes place the most effectively, is around the dinner table with one another. And so we'll say more in the coming weeks, in the coming months at Southside. We're going to continue doing everything we do on Sunday morning. If this is your first time here or something like that, and you're like, wow, I just showed up. It's like, good. Showed up for the good part, right? Everything will stay the same here on Sunday, but we will be inviting people into this kind of space. There's going to be a lot of discernment, iteration, and barriers to break down and growing pains in the process. Family is messy, complicated, scary, and weighty. Do you agree with that statement? Your family probably is, right? But everything I've experienced and the wisdom that we've read, the primary call of Jesus in the Gospels, and the example of the New Testament church is the call to families around table fellowship. And so this is the season that we're being invited into, I believe, by Jesus. To live at the speed of family with those who hear God's word and put it into practice, says Jesus. I spent some time at Maplehurst this last week for an orientation. Maplehurst is the giant prison right off the highway here at 25 and uh, 401. Can't miss it. Milton's known for it. It's a huge place. It is a sad place. Maplehurst is sad, man. I don't. I used to watch like prison shows when I was a teenager and think it was cool. Man, it's so it's so sad. It's really depressing, honestly. Like it's it was worse than I thought. And I don't know what I thought. I thought, ah, oh, Canada, our prisons are probably so cool and fun, right? No, it's really, really, it's really sad. It's heartbreaking, actually. The um, the inmates, they they are like treated like animals in closed cages. That's what it is, right? That's what a prison is. It's it's like these closed walls. Everything is fixed. Nothing can move because everything can be a weapon. You get basically nothing, right? The threat level's high. Fear is high. The guards are all anxious and angry and bitter because they have to deal with some of the most hurting and broken people in our community. And I was thinking this week, I was thinking, how many men, this is the men, there's a women's one there too, and I didn't go to that, I was at the men's one. So for me, I was thinking about men. I was thinking how many men could have avoided that reality, would have avoided that reality if they had the family of God in their life? Like I thought, like how many of them would be spared? The majority of prisoners, they're in inmates there, they're 18 to 22 years old. And how many of them could have avoided the lifestyle that they fell into because of brokenness and trauma in their life had they had a youth group to go to, you know? Had they gone on a winter retreat? It's not the solution, it's just they may have found family there, right? And then I started thinking in 10, 12 years of doing youth ministry, like, I don't know how many students aren't there or haven't spent time there just because of the investment that we made. I don't know that. God knows that. I don't know what the answer is for that. I don't know what the answer is. How many students have avoided living there for a season because of the work Resold does and the work that Coldest Night of the Year does? We don't know the answer, how many. But what we do know is that if young men and women find familial relationships that are trusting and safe that they can connect to and be loved by, we do know that it helps them make better decisions in their life. It helps them grow and heal. 
Bonhoeffer, who is familiar with prison. If you know Bonhoeffer's story, you would understand that. If you don't, you should look up who this Bonhoeffer guy is. He was a pastor who um, just rejected everything that happened in the, in the 30s and the 40s in Germany in the name of God, while a lot of other churches went on board with, um, with some of the stuff that the Nazis were doing. To the point where he, um, multiple times, was a part of a plot to try to kill Hitler and uh, ended up in prison as a result of it and ended up being killed for it. Deep thinking man. Some of his work is so formative and powerful. And he died way too young. But he says this in his formative book on Christian community called Life Together. He said, The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile, sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. He goes on to say, but if there is so much blessing and joy even in a single encounter of brother with brother, how inexhaustible, uh, inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who, by God's will, are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. It is easily forgotten that the Christian, or that the fellowship of the Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God, that at any day may be taken away from us. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Reading that in the context of um, my visit this week to Maplehurst was pretty powerful. And then I thought to myself, what could we do over the next 20 years in Milton? How could we live so radically like family with all of its discomfort and pain and annoyance and frustration? How can we live so radically like family following the way of Jesus that in 20 years from now, there's a few less percentage of men who end up in Maplehurst, right? There's few less women who end up at Vanier. What does it require of us? What does it take of us? And how can we do it with an attitude of grace and love, understanding that the gift that we have here is a grace? There are prisoners who do not have this, who know God, who belong to God, Jesus is their Lord and their Savior, and they are lonely. They don't have this fellowship. There are people all over the world who follow Jesus who do not have this kind of fellowship. Instead of seeing community, genuine family-like community, as a burden or a program or an activity that takes our time, we actually see it as the greatest gift that God has for us, for us to live into, and we do it so that others also will have the opportunity to see that and experience Christ formed in us and in our community. Let me pray, and then we're going to worship, and then Pastor John is going to come, and he's going to lead us through communion this morning, which is another gift of God's grace in our life. Lord Jesus, thank you. Um, thank you for this community that we have. A lot of us come from really great homes, and we're thankful for that. A lot of us, we have family overseas. We don't have moms and brothers and fathers and sisters around. And then a lot of us grew up in homes where our relationship is strained. Your promise, Lord, is that the family of God 
is a grace to us, is a gift to us. It is something that you have given us. And a lot of us also have hurt from the church, hurt from the body of Christ. Broken humans exist here and they hurt people and we wrestle with that. A lot of us have had fatigue from living in Christian community. <laughs> it's been burdensome. Lord, heal us of all of that. Remind us of the grace that it is to have Christian brotherhood and sisterhood. Remind us of the value and the importance and the centrality of that in living the life in accordance with you and building the kingdom of God. We ask that your Holy Spirit helps us with our rhythms and our practices on a weekly basis. Free us from the tyranny of the hustle. Give us opportunity and space and margin to be in real uh, familial community. And then show us your fruit from that. We know that at times it's difficult and the fruit usually pays off in 12 years from now. Give us the patience and the speed of life to trust that as we walk with you and into your ways. Once again, Lord, thank you for this community to worship with right here in downtown Milton. While there's thousands of people half a kilometer up the road who are as lonely as they've ever been, who are as sad as they've ever been, and who are longing for a hug or a conversation. That's a gift to us, so thank you for that, Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.